I want you to note a couple things. Number one, my daughter Avery, she's 13 years old. Uh, she's an eighth grader. She really enjoys 90s rock from when, when I was a teenager, which is pretty cool. So we can enjoy some of the same music. Uh, but uh, what she would really like you to know is that she's the mask police in our household. And uh, w- what that means is, is if I'm walking around, you know, sometimes when you talk, the mask continues to, you know, slide down your face. She's the one that will, like, make sure that it's adequately up my nose to, you know, not cause any problems. It's very important to her that she do that. She's the, she's the mask police. Now, I say that because uh, we were out to, to eat a while back. This has been a few months ago. And she got yelled at by a stranger in a restaurant. And uh, what we, had, we were in a pizza by the slice shop and we were eating and she had taken her mask down and put it on her chin. You know, I take it all the way off. She puts it on her chin to eat and she got up to get a refill. And as she was walking by, there was a long line. This is good pizza. There was a long line and there was an older gentleman who had stepped out of line and uh, her and my older daughter, but my older daughter had remembered to pull it up and said to Avery, said, put your blinking mask on your blinking face, like really stern and angry. Now, I didn't know this. I was in another part of the restaurant. Both girls, I mean, you know, 13 and 16, they're kind of like wound up about, you know, like I I should have mentioned Avery also doesn't like talking to people, much less being yelled at people, uh, strangers. So they come back to the table and they're like, dad, that guy, that guy yelled at me. Now, you guys know me. I am Patrick meek and mild, you know, I'm a nice guy. But I don't know how to describe, like, there's this part of, I think, dads that, like, is Bruce Willis-like, kind of. And you're just like, what? Somebody yelled at my child. And I'm like, so I asked them two questions. I said, first of all, who is he? Point him out. And they're like, he's a striped shirt back there. And I said, secondly, does he look like he works out? Is he big? You know, like, <laughs> what is it? Give me, a, give me the basic body, body type. Um, and then they, they, again, I'm like, a, I'm not a confrontational guy, but my family kind of was like, uh-oh, Pat, dad's like entered a different mode. So they kind of got out, they left the restaurant. And I'm like, you know, I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go talk to this guy. And I'm like, I'm, I, the problem was this, I wasn't 100% sure who it was, but I thought I was pretty sure there was one guy that kind of fit the description. So I went up to him and I'm like, sir, you know, like very angrily, sir, but still want to be polite, like that, you yelled at my daughter, and he kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit, like, but you could tell, like, he was like, what's, you know, what's this going to be about, but he had done it, there was enough people around, he had done it, and I was like kind of in full scene-making mode, I was like, ah, that's so frustrated about what had happened, and he was like, I was like, she's a 13-year-old girl, and I even wanted to say, she's the mask police in our family, like, of all people to pick on, you're like, she's the, you know, and I was like, I wasn't really yelling, but I was kind of like stern, you know, my stern voice, my kids say I yell when I get stern. I don't yell. I just like, I get stern. So I I was very, I feel like minor confrontations feel like a big deal to me. So this kind of felt like I was just like, like the Hulk, but I was, and I was still being polite. And I'm, so I'm like, she's a 13 year old. You, if you have a problem with the child, you come talk to the parent. You know, I was kind of just had this momentum because I was so frustrated that he had treated her as an abstraction. She, I don't know his story. Maybe he doesn't like teenagers. Maybe he doesn't like women. I have no idea, but he didn't know Avery. He didn't know Avery, eighth grade, 13 year old mask police. He just treated her like some random person who didn't care about other people or whatever it was and yelled at her and swore at her. And 
and it just made me so mad because I know Avery. She's not an abstraction. She doesn't occupy a bunch of labels. She's my daughter. I know her, and I don't like her being treated that way. And I'm having this confrontation with him, and in the middle of the confrontation, it dawns on me that he is also not an abstraction. He is also a human being. He's also a person. I don't know his story. He maybe has a loved one that's, that's in the hospital from COVID. He maybe I have no idea what his story is. And it dawned on me that I am essentially doing to him what I felt like I was upset at him doing to my daughter. Now, this doesn't mean I shouldn't defend her. This doesn't mean I shouldn't confront him. This doesn't mean I shouldn't talk to him. But I'm sitting there having this confrontation, and I'm like thinking, and I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit, I'm thinking oh, you know what, I got to wrap this up in a really positive way because what, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple. He's a potential disciple. I've, and I literally had to say, I've got to shake his hand before this interaction is done. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't want to shake his hand. I don't want, I want to be angry and I want to leave. But I was like, so how do I pivot now? And we got done, kind of done with this confrontation, and I sort of was losing steam. I was still upset, but losing steam. And finally, I was just like, well, you have a good day, you know, like kind of like an aggressive handshake, just because I realized that he is also not a label. He's also not just some grouchy old man. He is also a human being. And yes, he's the villain in this story. We are the righteous victims. That's okay to be indignant. It's okay to tell him, hey, sir, you should not have done that. It's okay. That's all okay. But he is also what we cannot forget. What I could not forget in that moment is that he's also a human. My handshake was probably a little aggressive, but still, I was, you know. That dynamic, that 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 interaction is prevalent in a lot of our relational dynamics where we just we kind of walk around with these labels and abstractions of other human beings that we have made that we have assumed and we interact with them based on what we think versus based on who they are and so the way we treat people literally has more to say about what we think than who that person actually is Because we have all these ideas and we've objectified people in all these different ways. They represent our assumptions and our frustrations and our fears rather than who they actually are. And and this happens all all kinds of ways. Ways that I don't even acknowledge sometimes. My wife will say, did you see that? And I'll be like, I have no idea. Yeah, he he wouldn't talk to me. Did you notice he only talked to you? No, I didn't know that. Because maybe he had made her an abstraction. Oh, she's just a woman. So she's not, I'm going to talk to the man. Or they're just a child. Or they're just a progressive. Or they're just a conservative. There, there's all these labels that we walk around with and we interact with people based on those things versus who they really are. So, so here's this large idea that we're going to be talking about in, in a little bit more detail. Is that anytime we treat people as our idea rather than the unique, complex humans that they are, the individual stories that they have, the hopes and dreams that they have, it actually says more about us than it does about them. It says more about what our, our, ourselves and our assumptions. And so what we're going to do in this series is we, yes, we are going to explore the idea of racial division and tension in this series. That's what we're going to talk about. Yes, that's going to be part of all this. And, uh, and this is not just something that we decided. We didn't open up a newspaper and say, oh, that seems to be the topic of the day. Let's address that as a church. Not at all. Th- these are things that we've been working through and thinking about for, for years. We're not trying to be trendy or edgy or, you know, current to our culture, although it is very much current to our culture. And yes, it would be safer to talk about anything else. Believe me, 
it would be much, I would have a much better time talking about something that we could all just agree on easily. Let's just read through the psalm and preach, preach Psalm 23 and we can all go away feeling kind of good about ourselves. This topic can come with it baggage and tension. Just the discussion of it can come, uh, can have those ideas. But I also think it's important to say, no, I don't think I'm an expert about this. I understand that. I'm not like someone who has gotten their PhD in any of these kinds of things. But I think it's important that this is a family conversation. We've called a family meeting. We're talking on the couch. And I think I am qualified to talk about the Woodbury Church of Christ and talk about our situation and what, what I think God wants for us and, if, and, and what we should be thinking through. So I have my PhD in Woodbury Church of Christ, you know, after 14 years here. I think I can talk to us, even though I may not be someone who has, who has a lot of experience in terms of racial tension particularly in my life, experiential experience. And so I think it's probably fair to say I'm maybe going to misspeak, and I may say something that sounds like, oh, I heard somebody else say that, and I'm trying to strenuously avoid like jargon and, and some of the language that surrounds us and just really get back to Scripture, but I'll need a little bit of grace if I say something uh, that's wrong or, or imperfect. And, and one of the things I think that I want you to know is I am going to try to use the word that the Bible uses to talk about this topic. And the word the Bible uses is, is the word ethnicity or ethnos. That's the word it uses throughout Scripture, ethnos. And I think it's important to use a word like that instead of race because, first of all, it's a biblical word. But secondly, it's when we think about race, we tend to think like black versus white. And that's not what this is about. It's about all ethnicities. It's about all backgrounds. It's about all diversity that, that, that this subject can bring up. So, you know, Nigerian, Hmong, Ethiopian, El Salvadorian, Lakotan. You guys weren't here for the first service two weeks ago, but somebody recited Amazing Grace in, in the Lakotan language, Native American language. I mean, it was pretty cool. So that's what we're talking about, all these cultures and languages and backgrounds. I mean, that's what, when the Bible talks about this subject, when you think about like Acts chapter 2 and everybody heard the gospel in their own language. I mean, it was just dozens and dozens of languages that are listed out there that people were hearing the truth of the gospel in. And when you think, see the picture at the end of the book of Revelation where like every tribe and every nation, that's what we're talking about. This is a big concept. Well, let me give you a, 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 an example of this, why I think ethnos or ethnicity captures this better. Uh, most of you know my youngest sibling, Michael. You've met him, interact with him in some ways. This is my dad and, uh, and Michael a few years ago. And my mom, by the way, if you want to, that's what they look like. I think they were at a camp, and I think Michael didn't want to leave. That's why he's got the sad look on his face. Um, and Michael's full name, this little guy, his full name is Sean Michael Doherty. Pretty Irish name. I'm just saying, if you are uh, someone doing hiring and you have a job application that says Sean Michael Doherty, and then this guy shows up, you're going to be a little surprised. This does, you're thinking somebody that maybe is more on the, you know, the leprechaun spectrum than, than what Michael looks like. Michael is this complex mix of ethnos. He is of Asian descent. He was born on the island nation of Taiwan, but he is descended from, descended from Han Chinese uh, ancestry. Uh, he grew up in an American family in a foreign country, but who has a strong Irish heritage. So he's all these different things. In fact, I, I probably told this story before, but I think it's so funny because he was young. He was probably close to this age, and he had one of those questionnaires that we sometimes have to fill out to, you know, make sure we have the right category, the right label. And so he was trying to 
fill out, you know, white, you know, African-American, all, all that kind of stuff. And he didn't know what label because he looked for Irish and it wasn't there. That's what he thought he was supposed to put. Yeah, I'm Irish. And that Irish checkbox wasn't there. And so he's like, I, I don't know. And so he did a little bit of thinking himself and he realized, well, the only thing that kind of fit, he saw the word American and that's the ch- box he checked, but it was African-American. So this kid, I'm sure takes back to his teacher, you know, I'm African-American. Like, okay, yes. all right. I mean, that's the, that's the complexity of this. He's, this. he's this Taiwanese born, youngest Asian child, the first generation Irish immigrants, naturalized American dad, from, who was born in Scotland, by the way. So he's, he's Irasian American somehow, right? He's all these things. But, you know, it's easier just to call him Michael because he's Michael. That's who he is. And how silly would it be if I walked around saying, oh, hey, everybody, here's my Asian brother, you know? Oh, it would be odd. Right? It would be a weird thing to do. He's Michael. It's easier to call him Michael because that captures all of that complexity in one person. So I think to say ethnos is, is, is more helpful, at least for me in the way I think, uh, to think about these ideas more clearly. So I want to do two things today. We're going to lay some groundwork, I hope, and I want to talk about the parameters of this particular conversation um, to help you see where we're going and where we're not going. Uh, and I want to establish the biblical principle for this discussion. Um, because th- we, we need to not mistake, this topic is, is biblical to its core. In fact, I think people being thoughtful about Scripture and navigating Scripture, this is inevitably going to come up. Well, one of the complaints I've heard about talking about this is that, well, can't we just stick to the Bible? Well, you're in luck, because that's exactly what we're going to do, because this is a biblical topic. And some people are, well, can't we just talk about Jesus? <gasps> Again, you're in luck, because Jesus dealt with this as well and modeled it for us perfectly. So I actually think that sticking to the Bible and talking about Jesus directly leads us to, to, to talking about this. So if we're listening to Spirit, if we're listening to Scripture, we are going to talk about ethnicity and ethnos and the way that it is kind of pervaded our culture, sometimes in, in unhealthy ways today. And in fact, when you think about this, this is just an aside, but some of the most significant moments in the history, particularly in the history of the United States, where there have been positive transitions in terms of of ethnicity and race, have been from people who found their foundation in Scripture. When you think about abolition, you think about the Emancipation Proclamation, you think about civil rights, the civil rights era, it was people who are convinced the Bible directly addresses this. This is not a side topic, but something that really truly matters even to God because it's in Scripture. And, and, I, and honestly, one of the disheartening things that seems to happen sometimes in this conversation is that the logic and the language around this discussion tends to be more about academia and politics than it is about Scripture, even sometimes in the church. And I just want to, I, I want to kind of push all that aside and avoid all the, 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 the jargon and just talk about scripture. And so I think that's true. I think for us as disciples, the way we talk about ethnicity, the way we talk about race should more neatly line up with scripture than it should any YouTube video or any book or any article. It should line up with scripture because scripture addresses this. All right, so let's, uh, let's look at scripture. Take your Bibles and turn to page one, Genesis chapter one. And you don't have to go very deep before you start realizing, oh, the Bible does address all of this. Genesis chapter 1. Um, when you read the account of creation, kind of think back to your Bible school days, there is this phrase that gets repeated uh, over and over. Every time God does something, there's a phrase that gets repeated. What is it? You can cheat if you want to look up there. It's good. 
So God would be like, all right, stars. And then he'd be like, that's good. And then mountains. Ooh, that's good. Rivers, lakes, fish. Ah, that's good. Forests. That's good. Think about what God was doing. God was totally complimenting himself. That's what he's doing through, throughout there. He'd be like, wow, I nailed it. I did an excellent job with that. I give myself an A. I mean, I love that. That's so awesome that God was like walking around making things and he's like, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. This is awesome. Excellent. But then he gets to humanity and he creates humans. He commissions them. And then at the end of that little section, he says something a little different. Um, what does he say at the end of creating humans? Anybody know? He adds a little, very. He says, humans, man, there's something very good. Those of you that like, oh, you saw the Grand Canyon. You see a sunrise over a beach. You look at beautiful mountains in, in, uh, in Colorado, and you're like, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. When you see a crowd of humans, you should be like, oh, that's very good. But a lot of you are like, no, that's not very good. I'm going to go somewhere else. That's very good, according to God. That's very good. Creation A, humans A+. plus. That's what God is saying in this passage. And he says good six times and he gets the humans and he says very good. Now zoom in on the humans for a second. This, this is, may seem a little bit nerdy, but it, it's, it's important. Genesis 1.27, this is a verse you're, you're familiar with. You've heard it before. So God created mankind in his own image. That's cool. That's good. In the image of God, he created them. Didn't you just say that in the line above? Weird. Male and female, he created them. But I want you to notice, I've left the formatting. If you're reading it in your scripture or on your, uh, on your Bible app, the formatting in this passage, not the, not the color of the text, is a little different. Do you notice what's going on in the formatting here? In fact, a lot of places in your Bibles will do this. You notice that it's just a little indented there? That's the translator saying, hey, I, we want you to know that in the ancient Hebrew, this is a, is a line of poetry. This is actually poetry. And you're like, oh, okay, I can get that. Because they kind of repeat, they rearrange the words. There's something poetic about that. And if you were to read it, if you were an ancient Hebrew reader, you would read through there. Here's this account. And then there would be this little bit of poetry right there. Now, we create headlines to make things stand out. They would, like, make poetry to make things stand out. This is their way of highlighting this verse in the, in the original text. And it's kind of cool. It's verses, it's highlighted because it's important. God's saying this is all caps. This is bold. This is, this is important. And it, the, the point is humans are very good because they're created in the image of God. They're very good. You, I almost didn't include this story in the sermon uh, because I think some of you are not going to believe this actually happened to me. Not because it's a wild story, but because like, it seems so random, especially related to this topic. Uh, I, like, I like to go running, and I was out for a run September 17th. And the reason I know it's September 17th because I wrote this down because I've never had anything quite like this happen. It wasn't one of those things where you're like, you can write a book about it. Or really, it's not even a very good anecdote. But I wrote it down because I was like, I've never had this happen. I'm out for a run, running down uh, Lake Street on the sidewalk. And there's these two boys ahead of me, probably 200 feet. And you could tell they're kind of in a conversation. They're kind of arguing a little bit. Not mad at each other, but like kind of jostling a little bit. And uh, I'm just going to go run by them. And they're middle school, maybe 8th, ninth grade. And they stop me from my run. That's unusual. And I have my earphones. And I'm like, oh, you know, what do you need? Pull my headphones out. And they said, and this is why I don't think you're going to believe me, but they said, what, what, what color is God? And I'm like, 
Well, first of all, you stopped the right guy because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a preacher and I think about this stuff. Um, but they're talking. They're both young black boys. And uh, the one boy said, well, my grandma says he's black. And I'm like, oh, great. I don't want to argue with your grandma. Like, you had to drag your grandma into this. And so, but, but then the other boy said, no, no, no. My parents say that God isn't any color. And so I'm like, what's the right thing to say? I don't know. And I'm like, God, please help me. I have no idea what the right thing to say is. And so all, all I could think to say is like, listen, I don't know your grandma. She sounds like she's a very nice person. But then I said, I don't, I don't want to disagree with anybody, but I, this is what I said, which is probably not very good. But I said, all I know is that I don't think God looks exactly like me because I know there's sometimes a prevailing idea that, you know, Jesus was a white European guy with blue eyes. And I was trying to dispel that notion. I don't think God looks like me. I said, I don't, I've never seen God. The Bible says no one has seen God. So I, I don't know if I can answer that question for you, but he probably doesn't look like me. He probably just somehow looks like all of us. And that was the best I could do on my run. And they were like, okay. And I put my headphones in and just kept running. That was the whole thing. And I was just like, what happened? What was that about? Now, the idea of what, what the image of God is, is a huge shift in thinking. It's an upgrade in thinking. We don't think about this sometimes, but this happens culturally, where there's these cultural moments where, where the collective cultural consciousness gets shifted, and there's just a new way of thinking. And then we watch stuff from, you know, you sometimes watch a sitcom that was made 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you're like, oh, they could not do that now because the way that that person was acting or the things that they were saying, you couldn't do that now. And then, so, of course, it works the other way, too. If you fast forward it, you know, time traveled somebody from, you know, I Love Lucy era where they had to have separate beds in the bedroom. You couldn't do some of those things now too. Like it, it, culture shifts because of different moments that happen in culture. But the idea of the image of God was a huge upgrade in human thinking from the way things had been. They had a category, ancient cultures had a category for image of God. Of course, they had idols that were literally called the image of God. By the way, in this text, it's the same word as that's used throughout Scripture for idols. Like we are the image of God. We are the we are the the man, physical presence and manifestation uh, appearance and picture of God. It's very interesting. But they also had this other idea that there were a certain class of people that were, were the, the chieftains and rulers and, and, and elders and, and kings. They were the image of God and they decreed to other people and everybody else worked for them and served them. And it was very important to keep those categories distinct. I mean, because can you imagine if everybody just started thinking they were special? If everybody just started thinking that they were important? But Genesis comes along and immediately dispels those notions and says everybody is created in the image of God. And even calls out specifically gender in that passage, male and female, he created them. And that's what Janet, right off the bat, right? The first thing, hey, you're the image of God, bam, you're all special. Wow, that sounds, uh, sounds like a dangerous idea if you haven't grown up in an environment with that idea. There's a, I don't know if you care about this, but I do, and I'm going to use this term. To describe this verse or the image of God idea theologically, um, it's called the Imago Dei. And, and that's Latin, which makes it sound smart, but it's just image of God in Latin. But it's this idea that humanity is given their intrinsic worth because they're the Imago Dei. And that's a great idea, and we're going to kind of use that, that term. In fact, that's the sermon series. We're calling it Imago Dei. Everything sounds smarter in Latin. The most true thing about you is what God says about you. 
The most true thing about you is what God says about you. It is the basic building block of who you are. It's the, it's, the, it's the material out of which we have this creative idea and energy about what we can do in the world and what we, how we matter to the world. And you can see some people get this really good sense of confidence and self-worth because they believe they're the image of God. But then other people, because whatever circumstances in life, that idea gets diminished and they feel like they deserve to be mistreated and they deserve and they act out in, in ways because they've forgotten this idea, because they've forgotten the truest thing about themselves, that they are truly deeply created in the image of God. Man, what would be different if we truly interacted with the world that way? Both that we are the image of God and so are they. Both that an eighth grade mask-wearing 90s rock-loving girl is the image of God and does not deserve to be yelled at, but so is the bad guy, the the pizza-by-the-slice guy that's willing to yell at teenage girls. Both those people are the image of God. And that's a heart, that's a tension that our culture cannot understand. We cannot understand that our enemies are also the image of God. We get that our friends and loved ones are, but we do not get that the villains and the bad guys are as well. That is so hard for us to get. And this idea is so powerful. If you think about the life of Christ, if you just think through his life, in Matthew chapter 1, uh, he is baptized and the Holy Spirit descends and God speaks to him. God literally says, not Matthew chapter 1, sorry, Mark chapter 1, God says to him, you are my son. You. He doesn't say, hey everybody, this is my son. He says, you are my son, whom I loved. I am well pleased with you. The most powerful words you have ever had spoken into your life were words of that nature. They were just, they were words of pride from a a friend or a parent. They weren't some profound new idea. They weren't revealing something that you had no clue was true about yourself. It was just a parent telling you, I love you. I'm so proud of you. That's, That's the most profound truth you've had spoken into your life. And that's what God did to Jesus. You are my son. I love you. I'm so pleased with you. And then immediately, Jesus is sent into the wilderness and he's tempted. And do you remember the very next thing scripture says is spoken about Jesus? The tempter comes along and says, if you're really the son of God, what's he trying to do? He's trying to undermine that sense of who God has declared him to be. That's that's universal. That God wants us to understand that we are known and we are loved and we are created in his image. And we 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 have a tempter that wants to undermine that idea about ourselves and wants us to treat other people without regard to that truth about who they are. I mean, isn't it the worst when people undermine that? Um, You know, everybody's received criticism, right? You know, you've all had people say, hey, uh, I think that shirt looks dumb, (laughs) you know, or you, you know, that haircut does not suit you. You know, you've had that and it's, it's kind of tough, but you appreciate that sort of honesty. You know, the criticism that really is undermining is, is when people like, we walk into a room with a fresh haircut or a new shirt and, and, and people say something like, you're not going to go out like that, are you? that's undermining because not only are they saying you look dumb and ugly, they're saying that you also don't have a sense of self-awareness or judgment to know that about yourself. 
And so it's like kind of in, in a way, those are the really harsh criticisms that sometimes we receive from people. It's not somebody just saying, I don't like that shirt. It's someone undermining kind of the way we think about the world and the way we engage with the world. And what happens when a person starts to believe that about their whole sense of self? When a person is made to believe that they don't belong and you're not one of us and you don't matter? The reason it's a problem is devastating is because it's dehumanizing. It's the opposite of the imago dei. It's deconstructing that fact that that human is created in the image of God. And so one of the things that Jesus does in every interaction that he has is he restores their sense of humanity humanity. Woman at the well, remember? He's just sitting there, noon, it's hot. Hey, would you get me a drink? It's a very interesting dynamic that he asks her to serve him. We'll have to talk about that some other time. What does she immediately do? She immediately identifies the abstractions and the labels. Oh, you, who are you, a Jewish man, to be speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? And what does Jesus say to all that? Doesn't even acknowledge, just blows right past it. Doesn't, it's almost as if those labels and abstractions don't matter to him. That's interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if she is an individual human with a complex history that he doesn't try to tiptoe around. Oh yeah, you had five guys and the guy you're with is not your husband. He doesn't try to tiptoe around that. Because for him, I am fully convinced that what she experienced from Jesus was not condemnation and shame, but love and reality about who she truly was. Not, not a perfect version of herself, but the true version of herself, and Jesus still loved that person. But think about all the things that he did, talking to children. I know to, in today's day and age, you know, being kind to children is kind of a good thing. Was not true in the first century. Kids were like, get out of here. You know, you're bothering him. In fact, that's what his disciples did to children. Jesus invited himself to lunch at a tax collector's house. You're not supposed to talk with tax collectors, not supposed to eat with them. You're definitely not supposed to invite yourself to their house. Speaking to uh, hanging out with sinners for dinner and prostitutes. I mean, it's just, he, I believe those actions were about restoring their sense of humanity, their imago day, And this is true for us. In, in, in when you go out to eat, that server is made in the image of God. And when he or she brings you your food and they got the order wrong, it is not okay to treat them as anything less than the image of God in that interaction. It's not okay with your body language to make them feel like they're dumb and they're stupid because they didn't get it right. It's not okay because that person is created in the image of God, no matter who it is. No matter, in fact, even if they're the villain, even if they're actively doing something to you, this is the truth of Scripture that's so hard for us to get, even if they're your enemy, they're still created in the image of God. All right, Patrick, this is great, but what does any of this have to do with ethnos? You made a big deal about talking about ethnicity and ethnos. I think, I think it's fair to say that the most significant shifts in our cultural narrative were when people could no longer make others an abstraction and their real humanity, their imago dei, came to the forefront. So when you think about our short history as a nation and you think about even just the civil rights movement, many of you were alive during that time and maybe some of these images will seem, uh, will bring back memories, but you think about Rosa Parks you know, Liam's learning about Rosa Parks in third grade. Well, sh she has a name. You can't just 
dismiss her as a category. You can't just think about like, oh yeah, I guess, well, what does it matter if black people sit on the back of the bus? That's just, that's just a thing. But, but what if she's an actual person with a name? And you start to think, well, maybe she's an individual and she has a story and she has, she has a life and a job and she's, an in, she's the Imago Dei. What if? And then it's, it becomes harder to dismiss that person. I think one of the most devastating images from that era is the picture of Ruby Bridges being escorted by the U.S. Marshals. You, you cannot dismiss the Imago Dei in this child. You can't look at this child and say she's an abstraction. Now, maybe people at that time, even Christians at that time, could say, you know, whatever, it really doesn't faze me. You know, it doesn't, not that big of a deal. But you start to see images like that, and you're like, oh, I can see her humanity. I can see the image of God. I can see that she matters. And then you see some of those pictures from, from uh, Birmingham back, in, <clears throat> uh, back during the civil rights marches there. These gentlemen who are walking down the road holding signs, I am a man. That's what they're claiming. I'm the, the Imago Dei too. I, I'm a man. When you see the fire hose that was turned on the protesters, it's just hard to dismiss that. It's hard to say, oh, those, they're not really people. And that's when these shifts begin to happen. When you see this picture of uh, he's a 17-year-old boy and the, the, the Birmingham police have sicked dogs on him. 17-year-old kid. When I see that picture, I'm like, oh, my daughter's 17. I wonder if he had some of the same hopes and dreams that she does. And it's hard to dismiss him as an abstraction. He's the Imago Dei. <clears throat> let's... let's put a fine point on this, and, and I want to be careful because I know as we talk about any of these things, it, it can get people worked up, and in our culture, all this stuff has become such an abstraction that you, you can't hardly say certain words without people getting riled up, but when the video of George Floyd first came out, I, I have not watched that. I have not watched the video. I can't watch it. I, I'm, maybe some of you have, and that's fine, but I can't watch it. I can't watch a human being dying. I can't see that. Because he's the Imago Dei. He's the image of God. But, but what happened a few days after that? Well, yeah, but he had a criminal history. So does that mean he's not the image of God? Well, I, I, didn't they find drugs in his system? Does that mean, not mean he's the image of God? He's, he's still the image of God. Now, now in, our, in, our, in our current cultural situation, in, in our state, in our country, George Floyd has become a hashtag. The name itself has become a little bit of an abstraction. And Christians have a responsibility to cut through that and remember the humanity of someone like George Floyd. Yeah, we, he, our world is treating him like the victim. But you know who else? Is, this is the hard, impossible truth for Christians. And this is the stuff that makes it so hard for us to, to, to wrestle with these ideas. George Floyd is the image of God. Derek Chauvin is the image of God as well. He's a human being created in the image of God. Dante Wright is the image of God, but so is Kimberly Potter is the image of God. And so is every name that has ever, the, the heroes and the villains, the victims and the villains, they're all in the image of God. Um, Daryl Davis is a, a musician, and there's this great documentary on, on what he's done, and it's just I mean, what a shocking image is that, right? Uh, a black man holding up these KKK uh, garments. And he, he's, he goes to KKK rallies and cross burnings. This guy. That's, that's pretty brave. 
and he befriends people who are involved in the KKK. And uh, he, you watch the documentary, this is the quote he says out of it. He says, it's this incredible story, and he says, I, I never set out to convert anyone in the clan. I just set out to get an answer to this question. How can you hate me when you don't know me? And it turns out, once they got to know him, they could no longer hate him. Once he became a person and a human with a face and not an abstract idea with a label that you could distance. And then these guys are like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Give him their clan robes. He's got 200 of these. If you watch that documentary, it's unbelievable. But what's he doing? He's just making them see his humanity. That's all he's doing. He's making them see, I am in the image of God. I want to end with a confession, and, and then we're going to sing, and we're going to sing some songs that are actually related to uh, the history of slavery and civil rights, a, f- a few songs like that. But I want to end with a con- confession. Um, I, uh, in the, over the last couple months, I guess, there's been this, this rise, at least in the national consciousness, of anti-Asian American violence, and there's even a bill recently signed. And uh, there was, I saw an article just in passing. I didn't even read the article. This is, <laughs> this is how bad I am. I just read the headlines and think that I kind of got it figured out. But the headline said, you should check on your Asian uh, American friends, make sure they're okay. And I read that and I'm like, well, it doesn't really affect me in my daily life. And I just kind of went about my business. And then, I don't know, a couple minutes later, I was like, wait a second, Patrick. Yeah, it does affect you in your daily life. We have a whole uh, church body of Hmong you know, immigrants and children of immigrants that meet at our church, man, wouldn't that be tragic if they were mistreated because of their Asian heritage? That would be terrible. Patrick, you need to pray for them. You should check in on them. You should really, you know, you should, that's important. Yeah. And then I went about my day. And then about two minutes later, I'm like, Patrick, you're such a dummy. Your brother, your sibling, the guy who's in all those family pictures, he is Asian as well. Like, what in the world? How could you forget that? I mean, he is your parents' favorite son. You're number two. How did you forget he was Asian? But you know why I forgot? And there's a beauty and a tragedy to this, and this is important. The reason I forgot is because he's just Michael. And I think about the, the funny things he does and his personality and his quirks and the texts that we exchange where he's asking for, you know, older brotherly advice. I don't stop. I don't walk around and say, here's my Asian brother, everybody. Here's my, meet my Asian. That would be weird. But you know what? That, that part of him is something God created in him. It's part of who he is. And for me to dismiss that and disallow that is also not good. Because it's part of how God created him. And, I, and so, no, we don't have to walk around and like, like oh, that, that person's this, that person's this other thing. But we have to acknowledge that that is who God created them to be and how God allowed them to navigate the world because of that background. It's the weight that they carry. Now, ethnic tension may not directly impact you, and maybe this feels like an abstraction. What does this have to do with my daily life? But we have brothers and sisters that say this is a deal. This matters. It's a weight that we carry, and the way that you as a church and brothers and sisters react to it and respond to it matters. If Avery had come up to me and said, hey, Dad, this guy uh, yelled at me, and, and I didn't like it. It made me feel made me feel like I didn't matter and made me feel unimportant. And I had said, Avery, whatever, just get over it. That would have been the wrong thing to do. 
if we have brothers and sisters who are telling us, hey, this world is making us feel like we don't matter. I know it's not your experience. I know it doesn't matter to you, but this world is doing things that make us feel like we're less than and we're unimportant. And we say, "Ah, just get over it. That's not okay either. And that's why this truth grounded in the first page of scripture matters so much that we are the Imago Dei and so are they. So as we, as we wrap up, we're going to spend a, a, a week or two talking about this because there's so much really to talk about. I had to cut so much stuff out just for time. But I just, my, my, my hope is that, that we just start here, that we, we, may we not reduce anyone to a label, but may we always elevate others to their rightful place as image bearers of God. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing uh, and, and I think we're going to enjoy it. But I just wa- I want us to walk in this idea that, that every person you interact with, good, bad, indifferent, every person you interact with is an image of God. Let's pray.